Hello, everybody. Glenn here with yet another call to action. And first, I just want to thank everyone who participated in our review drive earlier this year. That was a huge help. Elder Sign actually shows up on some searches now. So thank you so much for that. But ultimately, we would like to be more than just searchable. And in fact, we would like to be personally introduced to people who like reading and watching the same things that we like reading and watching here at the network. And so I am back to ask you to share our podcasts on social media. Of course, we're going to incentivize that. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, But first, I want to talk about what would be most helpful to us. Uh, Number one, and, and really the easiest and most obvious thing, is telling your friends and followers on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram about our shows and especially what you like about them and why you think they might as well. But also, there are loads of communities on Facebook and Reddit that are dedicated to the genres and authors and shows that we cover on the network. Now, we certainly do not want people spamming those groups, but if you are a member and a contributor of a group like that, we would love for you to let other people in those groups know about our shows. And I guess Goodreads is a place this could be done as well, but I just don't know very much about that. But if you do, we would be really excited to find people there as well. And so, like last time, we're going to give away three prizes to people who share our shows or or just generally promote us on social media over the next two months. Uh, Top prize, of course, is a free bonus episode on a story or, or topic or episode of your choice on any of our shows. And then we're also giving away two free nominations for an upcoming Patreon vote, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter. So this is a chance, really, to get us to cover something that you love that we have rudely been ignoring. Now, we're going to run this bumper here in September, then again in October, and as soon as Brandon's annual scary movie night around Halloween time is over, I'll draw names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat is by sharing us in any of the places I just mentioned. You'll get an entry in the hat for every share or post, uh, but please do not spam people. We're we're trying to bring people into our community, not annoy them after all. Uh, And then you can just let us know by the end of October how many entries you get. You can, I don't know, send us a screenshot. You can just make a list, whatever you would prefer. And you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com, or you can message us on Patreon or Twitter. And by the way, if you have already done this sort of thing, we are obviously going to count that. All of those times are going to get your name in the hat. And thank you so much for doing that as well. There are a number of you who have been doing this all on your own without any incentive for literally years. And we are truly grateful for that. Okay, so if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch probably early November or so. We're, of course, especially excited to work with someone on crafting a special bonus episode. As we say all the time, that is really one of our our favorite things to do. And it, it really is. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Uh, this episode, we're continuing our coverage of the novella Silhouette for those who are reading along with us in Endangered Species. This is going to cover up to page 472 of the story. It's our second episode in our Silhouette miniseries at Clay Temple Media. 
But first, uh, a quick note just to let you know that since we are nearing, finally, (laughs) nearing the end of this batch of short stories and novellas, we're now incorporating the stories that didn't make it onto the main show in our Patreon rotation. And we have just done uh, Kiris Laputa's Sum, which was an absolute ton of fun. I really love that story. So if you are not already a Patreon supporter, we do hope that you'll uh, check that out. And of course, we want to say a huge thanks to all of you who already support us. This show just would not be possible without you. So thank you so much for making that happen yeah we appreciate it so much we are able to continue along with the work we do at clay temple media because of your support if you want to spread that support around get get people to listen to us who haven't ask them to support us we would appreciate that as well if you're listening now and you are not supporting us we'd love for you to just head over to patreon check out the levels and make a decision on whether or not you want to support us this show will continue to be free but we have a lot of great content on patreon that supplement a lot of these episodes there's a lot of uh, additional gene wolf stories tv shows episodes of tv shows that we cover and other conversations with members of the whole clay temple family so check us out pop over there and think about becoming a supporter of clay temple media on patreon but enough of that let's get back into silhouette glenn where did we leave off where are we going Right. Last time we left off with Grit finding Johan floating unconscious in his quarters, and then Johan finding a talking shadow there. So we open this episode as Johan goes to the doctor to get his medical card so that he can make Grit have sex with him. And this involves getting into a diagnostic tube that I I guess has a medical tricorder inside of it. (laughs) But what matters is that Johan does indeed have some bruises on his forehead where he hit his wall, but he also has lacerations on his legs. And hey, how did he get those? Johan has no idea, but he says that he had a, a dream, which I, I think we should just read. I was on Neuer Draht, walking through sand. I walked and walked, and after a long time, I came to a chasm. So suddenly, it seemed to open at my feet. It was full of waterfalls and natural fountains kind of a vertical garden of water, and giant ferns and orchids. But that is all that we get about the lacerations now. But, you know, if you've read an SF book before, you might have some sense of of where this is going. But for now, we are back on the bridge. The away team is displayed on screen where they are camped on a naked tour that rises above the planet's dense vegetation. Gorgeous image there from Wolf. Johan and the duty officer who he is relieving, they, they, they talk about the planet. The captain, it turns out, thinks that this is it, the habitable planet they have been looking for. Or, even if it isn't, they are still going to spend two years here, and then they're going to go back home and report success, even if it's a a fictitious success. But Johan doesn't think they should be living on a a planet, any planet. He thinks it's a mistake, and there there just aren't enough planets anyway. Uh, Look how long it took them to find this one, for example. And besides, this one doesn't even have a breathable atmosphere. And at this exact moment, the captain emerges from her ready room and she scolds Johan for saying this bit, uh, especially about the breathable atmosphere. Johan hasn't actually seen any data about the planet. He has only surmised that the air isn't breathable because the away team are wearing breathing equipment. But the captain gives him the data. It's perfectly breathable down there. And then she reminds him that she doesn't answer questions. She asks them. And now that he's been informed that he's wrong, he had better not go around repeating his claim here about the atmosphere. And on top of all of this, she's just heard from the doctor that he showed up for an exam with self-inflicted wounds, presumably so that he could be certified unfit for duty so that he won't have to go down to the planet. 
Now, we know that's not true, and Johan tries to say so, but she just tells him that because this mission is crucial, she is going to follow all the rules to the letter, and if he gets certified unfit for duty, she will honor that. But if he does get such a certification, he'd really be better off never showing it to her and just going about his job. Uh, it is exactly like the army that I was in, for sure. I mean, I've heard this exact same speech, for sure. And uh, another thing about this scene that we should do before we pause is that Grit is working on the bridge again. And uh, when she sees that Johan has been cleared of any illness, she asks when she should be there. But Johan is actually not eager uh, about this. He'll tell her later, is all he says. And she thinks that he's playing coy with her now and that he's maybe lined up someone else instead. Uh, but when he indicates that that's not true, she she looks at him oddly. And, and, and so I think we're actually finding out a little bit more about this weird system. I mean, up until this point, this has felt very rapey to me. Well, it still feels maybe a little rapey to me, but that's not the sense of, of Grit's uh, b- demeanor here, I don't think. Right. What we'd call something like romantic love is really taking place in the background of this story, even though it's covered up with the function of sex as a kind of appetitive desire. It's an appetite that needs to be sated. And then once it is, you can kind of move on with your day and go on with your day. Uh, Wolf is doing something with sexual politics here. And as we've discussed a lot in the last episode, and also the kind of uh, philosophical theories of sex as well. I'm not going to jump into that too much right now, and I only really have a few comments for this section, but the first thing I really want to do is point out Wolf's description of the medical officer because I like it. It's short, but this is what Wolf writes. He says, Carl, the medical officer, was a skeletal man with burning eyes. Here we have Wolf describing the medical officer who's a man in terms of his body, but not about his like virility or sexual prowess or anything like that, or potential for breeding, like Wolf does when describing the women of this story. He's kind of using this dark imagery, this kind of ghastly imagery to describe the medical officer, almost like a skull with uh, candles burning in the eye sockets. And this is also an indication of... Describing the medical officer in terms of his mind, uh, these eyes indicate something happening in the mind of the male officer. And and we, in the last episode, talked about this style, this pattern of writing uh, that is all over literature where women are typically described in terms of their body and men in terms of their minds or in tell. In, or intelligence. Uh, And this is kind of an example of that dichotomy that I wanted to bring up. Mostly, I just think it's a great description. It's one of Wolf's great descriptions. Wolf often describes people in terms of their eyes and what's going on with them. Also, I'm pointing out again here that Carl is spelled with a K. And if we haven't been 100% certain, we can be certain now, this is a German ship. Yeah, right. Wolfpack's a lot about the sexual dynamic or about the sex stuff going on on the ship in this scene, because although he he doesn't describe Carl in terms of the virility, perhaps, of his body, Carl actually comments on this about Johan's body. Uh, he tells Johan that he has a nice leg, good shoulders, too. Very virile, in fact, is what he says. But then he also says, you know, they ought to have books for us. And clearly here he's thinking about the the uh, sex appointment books that the that that people have. That you know, Johan has one. He showed this to Grit. I, I was curious about who the us is here. Is it is it 
just men? Is 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 Carl advocating for maybe women should be getting books as as well to to force us to make appointments, or is this going back to something we were talking about with Emil? Is Wolf actually writing about uh, gay men on the ship? And and we don't necessarily need to tackle that here since we are, we know that we're going to do this in the discussion. But this was something that really jumped out to me, and it's a it's an in, incredible amount of 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 world building uh that's done in just this one casual conversation that's you know even just adjacent to what we're here for which is hey how did johan get these cuts on his leg that's a really great reading of that line and it hadn't occurred to me at all that this is an example of another character on the ship who may be gay and doesn't have access to the same uh, sexual benefits that uh, the the straight people on the ship have. Uh, it's a it's a great reading and not something, and it's something we will be absolutely discussing in this story. But you're right; we are here to talk about the lacerations, which is something we have to keep in mind. They will return later in the story. We will get an explanation of them, and Johann's dream is very important as well. But part of the lack of believability of the dream or that this event, this dream that he has is more than a dream. He still thinks it's just a dream. Uh, Johan is really just caught up in the fact that he believes humans can't breathe on the planet, as you brought up. But this assumption is based on an incomplete set of data. And so now we have a third person narrator telling this story to us, the reader, who is revealing information to us about the world through the character's own ignorance, the character's making assumptions on an incomplete set of data, and we're not given that objective viewpoint. We're only being told the truth through the reports of other characters. Uh, it, it is a classic Wolfian technique here. The air is breathable on Neuerdrat. In fact, it's slightly more oxygen-rich than Earth, but the explorer's the explorers still wear this breathing apparatus, and, and this is the piece of data that confuses Johan as he's trying to extrapolate on incomplete information. Uh, we're not sure why the explorers are wearing this breathing apparatus, and it might be a while until we find out. Johan has some thoughts, though, that I'd like to point out before we move on with the recap here. And this is something you, you touched on a little bit. He says to Ellis, the duty officer that he relieves when he takes over the watch on the bridge, that he that that he thinks that living on planets is a mistake and that planets are the accident of the universe. I wonder what you think the alternatives to this attitude are, Glenn. I don't want to have a discussion episode this early on, but this <laughs> this is a strange attitude. And I think we will want to talk about what Johan's main beliefs about being are in the discussion. But at this point, I don't even know what the alternatives to Johan's attitude about planets being a mistake and living on planets is a mistake are. Does it thinks people should just live on spaceships that are governed by computers? I, I don't know what he believes. Well, I do think that that has to be the only alternative because I think that planet is is meant to encompass also, you know, any celestial body, right? So moons, you know, Europa, Io, and so on, I think would qualify as planet uh, in this scheme. So yeah, I think he has to be thinking about spaceships. Uh, and of course, right, one of the things we can infer from the report that the captain thinks this is it, the planet they've been looking for, and there's go this business about going back to Earth and reporting success is that it seems that that 
people need a new home, right? Whether it's all people need to get off earth and go live somewhere else, or if it's just overcrowding. And so some percentage of people need to get off earth and go live somewhere else. That's not clear to us. It may never be clear, but it's certainly not clear to us yet. Uh, But it seems to be a a mission of grave importance. But Johan doesn't think that this is the way to solve the problem, that there are other ways to solve it. So I suppose, yes, spaceship, but he also might even just mean space stations, right? Like, why not just build space stations around Earth and we can let people live up there, right? But we don't need to be going light years away, cryogenically freezing people, uh, sending people out onto these 17-year Newtonian time missions to maybe see if a planet that astronomers know about is habitable or not. And it's clear that, right, they've looked at other places and have not found habitable planets. And this one maybe is only barely habitable, even if it really does have a breathable atmosphere, like the captain claims, this whole business with the radiation is it's not going to be livable for, for humans. Uh, so, so I think that's what Johan is thinking about here, is that we could just engineer our way out of this. Yeah, I think that's the case as well. But I still, at this point in the story, and maybe by the time we get to the end of the story, am unsure whether Wolf is asking the reader to defend or reject Johan's position. Johan has an incredibly complicated belief system about humanity or maybe conscious beings in general. This is something to think about as we continue on our recap. Right. And we're actually going to get more of this explicated in the very next scene. So Johan is going to the the bridge to stand watch, but we don't actually see him on watch. We don't see him do his duty shift. And so the next scene, we, we pick up in his quarters after that watch has ended. Emil is there along with a man named Heinz, and they are burning incense. So he gets back to his room and finds uh, some dudes in there already burning incense. That's nice, I guess. And what they're here about is that they believe that Johan is some kind of messianic figure. In times of crisis, Heinz says, a priest appears, a mediator between humanity and the unimaginable powers. And Heinz believes that Johann is that priest, and and he believes this because Johann's name has appeared in some divination sand, and because uh, Gerhard and Elsa, some characters we haven't met yet, uh, have dreamed of him, and because also of the symbolic meaning of the letters of his name. And they are just here as delegates, uh, right? They represent a large group of people who genuinely believe that Johann should be in charge around here. Now, Johan is skeptical, uh, for one, although he recognizes that there are political factions on the ship and that the captain is not omnipotent. Still, he is himself is not any kind of power on the ship. And also, what crisis, right? What are they even talking about? And here, in response to this question, then we get actually some more of this backstory. We get this explicated a little bit more for us. Now, Heinz wants to start a full-on colony here and and then allow settlers from Earth to come, but Johann cuts him off before he can even really finish that thought, and and he's got uh, just an awesome monologue here that I'm going to read. Earth is dead. We've been searching for a habitable world for years, traveling at near light speeds. Several hundred years have passed on Earth, and the famines were already coming every decade or so when we left. What do you think it was like a hundred years later? Look back, five hundred years. Everything valued then is dead now. Beauty and architecture and language. Freedom. The family. Kinship. The tribe. All the relationships of blood. All dead. Religion. The dream of objective justice. The very ideas of a garden and a forest. All dead. 
Now, Heinz and Emil, they actually they disagree with the pessimism that Johann is expressing here. And Heinz also disagrees with Johann's physics, which is interesting. Uh, he calls Johann an Einsteinian for believing in relativity, while he himself favors the more modern belief that any time discrepancy will be undone if you follow the exact same path back to your starting point, uh, the same way that an echo will mute a continuous sound. And I have no idea if that was an idea that was ever championed against Einstein, though I would love to know more about that if it was. It's something I would really love for listeners to come to the forum or our our subreddit and and tell us about. But what really matters here is that Heinz wants to circumvent the captain and just establish a colony on the planet. Johan does desperately want to go down to the surface as well. And in, in fact, he thought he was the only person who actually wanted to go down to the surface. But it doesn't matter, because if he had any way to do that, he would have done it already. So really, these dudes are wasting their time coming to him. And they leave, though Heinz pointedly leaves the incense on the table. Uh, so, all right, there is a lot going on in th- this section. A lot of world building, and then also <laughs> suddenly some some stakes and some... Like, there's some semblance of a plot getting started here. Yeah, and, and this physics bit where is where I want to start. It's really baffling. And, and once again, I'm not going to pretend to understand it all. I do want to talk about it a little bit. But from what I gather, this disagreement about physics has something to do with things called world lines and closed time-like curves and event horizons. I don't know. I don't have the resources or the education to really understand the situation much more than tossing some jargon out at our poor audience here. But I will say that maybe looking into to Kurt Girdle will be a good place to start uh, to investigate this kind of uh, position that Heinz is taking. Ba- basically, if this crew were to f- travel back along the same exact path that they flew out on, they could create a situation where effect precedes a cause to an outside observer. So they would return having found the planet just as they were leaving. But to an objective observer, there would be no series of events that have taken place along uh, a, a timeline like like we have, like the way we measure time. And this is going to come up later in the story as well. Um, no, an objective observer, an objective observer w- would not have observed any events because the ship would have moved back and forth through the same event horizons. And uh, I'm using event horizon here, not in the black hole sense, but in the sense of the distance to which something taking place cannot impact the observer or even be witnessed by an observer. Look, I I really hope our better educated scientist listeners are (laughs) laughing at my description because I'm just out here doing the best I can. The best I can say is it's like what Jodie Foster tries to describe at the end of contact where she does do all this space travel in this ship that they build where they drop her in a ball through a ring. And uh, there are hours of unaccounted for time, but for the observers of this mission, it's a failure. So basically this ship goes out, it comes back along the same exact world line, which is a series of events through space time and close a, the time loop and they, arrive they don't even actually leave there's nobody witnessing them leave uh and yet they found the planet and they can report on the location of it and maybe move people back out to earth to neuerdrat 
Um, I'm sorry. That's the best I can do. Uh, <laughs> but I, th- I think that's kind of what Heinz is trying to explain. Right. Well, let me let me ask you some questions about this because I, I don't know anything about the history of these ideas either. But this was an idea that was that was around in response to Einstein. How 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 quickly after Einstein's theory of relativity did this idea come up? Was this idea proposed, and how much currency did it have? And is, is this something that people were still into in the 1970s? Are people still into this idea today? Do people still think that this sort of thing would be possible? I think a lot of this stuff comes from. Uh, Kurt Gödel's uh, he was a German physicist and logician, really incredible thinker, like one of the best thinkers of the 20th century. Um, he died in 1978, so he was, I think, working off of Einstein's ideas of physics, but he disagreed with some of the um, problems of time and space time and particular. Uh, so, you know, the, I think these ideas came up, as I said, this, this sort of thinking shows up in contact. So I think these were pretty fruitful ideas for, uh, space travel and physics and, uh, physics and time. But like I said, you know, Gödel got his doctor in 1930. Um, and he was writing in, he was a contemporary then of Einstein and writing in response to, Uh, all of this revolution in physics that was taking place using um, non-Newtonian math to describe different levels of analysis. You have uh, physics taking place on the very small scale, quantum physics, you have cosmic physics, and then you have uh, the way Newtonian physics governs the movement of bodies. So there's a massive revolution in theoretical physics and the understanding of the universe uh, and particles, uh, you know, taking place in this time that continue to bear fruit, you know, well into the, even the, the time we live today. So, um, that's all I've got about that. I, I don't know, you know, too much more to say about it. There are lots of lots of great books that are written about it. And Gödel himself is a fascinating character that rejected, I think, Kant's view of time as an arrow. Yeah, Gödel has actually just come up in a book that I'm reading for Atos as as well. This is the the Time Ships by uh, Stephen Baxter, a authorized sequel to the H.G. Wells book, the the Time Machine. And uh, you know, when we were doing the the fifth out of Cerberus, and specifically when we were doing a, a story by John V. Marsh, which uh, we are going to come to see has a number of parallels with Silhouette, I got super obsessed with the philosophy and and also the physics of 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 time because that was such a big part of the the religion uh, as depicted in uh, in that part of the fifth head of Cerberus. I have not yet dug into the philosophy and, and physics of faster than light travel, but we do still have some time before we get to our discussion episode. So we'll see if I uh, 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 become obsessed, uh, totally transform into a complete crazy person for two weeks uh, to, to bone up before we get there, because it would certainly be interesting to to think about some of the things that, that Wolf is uh, is doing here. Well, I, you know, for our listeners who really enjoyed my poor physics monologue, we've got at least one more in this series on silhouette that I've written. So uh, more more bad physics coming your way. And <laughs> hopefully uh, we'll get some feedback and, and a robust discussion on the forums for people who know a lot more than I do. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, crazy and theoretical and mathematically 
possible but not observable. So that that's really what's going on here. There's a lot more obviously going on in this scene than all the physics stuff. We see a return of Johann's pessimism uh, about whether humans really deserve a second chance at existence or maybe need to be shackled to some sort of technological wonder in order to exist. Surely some of Johann's derision is aimed at Heinz and Emil here. And and some of that is related to the fact that they want to restart life on the planet. And Johann has stated that living on planets is a mistake. We just saw that. You know, also at this point, though Johann is disappointed in his rank and position, he doesn't seem to have any genuine problems with the way the ship is functioning, at least not open issues, even though as readers, as we discussed in this last episode, this ship is a failing Gothic estate. But Johan does have personal issues uh, with what's going on with the ship, and he's been able to normalize all of these issues that we've been introduced to. Uh, and his personal issue is about his dissatisfaction with his ability to go down to the planet and gain rank in the system. These are the main character conflicts that Wolf is working to resolve by the end of the story. And it's easy to forget that or ignore them because there's so many other things we see. But in terms of craft, two character conflicts for Johan, inability to gain rank, inability to go down to the planet. Those things need resolution. I also want to point out here that as we just saw with Johan and his assertions about the breathing apparatus, Johan here has no justifications for his beliefs about the state of earth. Once again, he's making an assertion and there's no reason to believe that if humans could create this kind of spaceship or some marvel of technology to sustain life, that they couldn't fix the problems on Earth. And who knows, really, if the things he once valued are dead or if they're thriving. But if he believes that the best thing is for the ship to return to Earth and to make a better home planet because everything but the crew of this ship is dead, then that might explain some of his decisions uh, as we follow him throughout the story as he continues to make decisions. But I'm still baffled as to why Johan is so down on this planet on planetary living other than to be a cool explorer and a chief member of uh space force <laughs> but, but he seems to really have conflicting motivations at this point in the story one more thing i want to point out before moving on to the story is that we get this small payoff about eels about emil's roommate burning incense uh, we saw this in an earlier scene where Emil was talking about how living with people, you know, they're smelly and, and like one of his roommates burns incense. And in this scene, this burning of incense gets a whole new set of meaning. And this is the way information is delivered to us throughout the story. It's not just in burning incense that Heinz is into. It's incense and sand scrying and black candles and maybe reformed <laughs> devil worship on some <laughs> levels. I mean, Heinz admits he was a diabolist back on Earth. And this is the way that Wolf is writing the whole story, as I said. There are so many details that are put into the story and we can assume because of this bit about burning incense that there is far more untold to us than is told to us. And, and we've already pointed that out in terms of dialogue and reading between the lines. I think that's been you know obvious, and I hope people who are reading the story along with us have noticed that. But I 
really wanted to hammer the point home. I really wanted to hammer that point home here about the way that Wolf is dealing with information and secret knowledge, really a kind of unrevealed knowledge that the reader doesn't have access to in terms of his craft. Right. And and this is also pointing to some of the breakdown of the ship, right? This is, we talked last time about how people were turning to uh, sex and, and drugs as, as a way of coping with life on the spaceship. And now we see also that they are turning to uh, religions and maybe even starting new religions or uh, picking up old pagan religions. And certainly they're founding sorts of secret societies, secret cabals and, and so on in order to cope with life on this on this ship ship. Uh, But also, I think that the incense here shows a flagrant violation of regulations, right? There is no way that open flames can be allowed on a spaceship, right? But these people are not caring about that. And they're going to go into someone else's room and and violate that that order. They're going to go into someone else's room and have an open flame on, on the spaceship. Though, you know, to be fair, Spock is doing it on the Enterprise all the time and seems to be okay. But it's not really a good idea on a spaceship. No, definitely not. And, and more bad ideas will follow the way these people, <laughs> as, we, as we learn more about the way these people actually live their lives. All right. Well, uh, alone again in his room, Johan opens up his air vent to get this incense out of there. And he notices his shadow on the opposite wall. And it doesn't seem that its motions are properly coordinated with his, with the motions of his body, almost as if it's not really a shadow at all. In the dim light of the only fixture that is still functioning, Johan removes his bandages and he he takes a look at his lacerations. Maybe they were self-inflicted and he just doesn't remember doing it, but they are definitely too deep to have been caused by his fingernails. So, a mystery. When he turns around, suddenly he is no longer in his room. There is sand beneath his feet, and the light is now the waning light of Algol, as it is almost totally eclipsed by its dim partner. He feels the tug of gravity again, and there is a sweet smell in the air, like a garden on fire, or the smoke of myrrh. The whispering voice is back. Bear to your right, only a step. There is no path, but you will find the way more open there. And when Johann turns to look at the speaker, the the voice tells him not to, and explains that if Johann sees him, he will not be able to speak. Now, naturally, right, I think as all of us would, Johan has a lot of questions, uh, not least of which is, are you the blow to my head, right? Meaning, am I <laughs> suffering from brain damage here, right? Is this a hallucination? The voice, uh, the, the shadow explains that he didn't bring Johan here. And here is clearly the surface of Neuerdrat, by the way, but rather it's the other way around. Johan brought the shadow here. Which, you know, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to to Johan, since this whole deal is something that is happening to him. It's not something that he feels like he is doing. But the Shadow says that having searched Johan's mind, he knows that humans have long been able to travel from place to place without actually traversing the intervening space. Right? The Shadow is talking about astral projection here, uh, something that we have not really talked about in a long time, but which Wolf was clearly really into when he wrote a story by John V. Marsh. And of course, the epigram from Ambrose Bierce clued us in that this was going to feature in this story, that we were going to get some astral projection at some point. But at any rate, Johan isn't really here, or maybe he isn't anyway, because the shadow says that he is sleeping, but he also isn't dreaming this. And and then finally, Johan asks the seemingly pertinent question of, who are you? And he whirls around to look, but all he sees is his shadow stretched behind him on the sand, like a cloak extended by the wind, uh, a great simile from Wolf there. 
And seeing no one, he turns around, he continues walking as the shadow had instructed him, and this next paragraph is also just gorgeous, so let's read it. Night came long before he reached the high palisade of thorny trees. He had never, in the years before blast-off, been outdoors after sunset without being in sight of man-made light. Blackness astonished him. There was no moon. The myriad stars, which promised so much brilliance, gave none, though without them he would have thought himself blind. He stopped from time to time and searched the night sky for the ship, which should, he knew, have appeared as a winking planet moving against the background of fixed and distant suns. He could not find it. And just, what a tremendous description, and a lot for us to unpack later. But for for now, the, the shadow is back, he says, friend. And he explains that he never left, but since Johan had seen him, he, he couldn't communicate with him anymore. But now that it is dark and Johan can't d- distinguish him, they can communicate again. But the shadow is here, really, to guide Johan through the thorny vegetation that he cannot see. And as Johan walks, he feels a pressure and sometimes a soft, spongy material steering him or protecting him from hazards. And that's it. That's the end of this scene. A really serious business scene that I think completely changes what I thought this story was about. And it does this in quintessentially wolfish fashion. This was a game changer of a scene for me. I mean... Frankly, up until this point, I had no idea what the story was about, and I'm still not sure at this point that I know what the story is about. Is it about power struggles or about a broken down spaceship full of a desperate crew? Is it about a mutinous contingent that are representing a kind of Mephistophelian character (laughs) from Faust? Is the shadow good or bad? Is this representing God? Is it a product of Algol, which isn't good? Uh, Is there a God that is on this ship that ought to be followed? We have devils everywhere. And now we've got astral projection and entities from a planet that showed up. These entities showed up around or a little after the first group of humans went down to investigate Neuradra. It has not been long, maybe only a few days, maybe the same day that the story opens on that the humans went down to investigate Neuradrat. The entities, by the way, are both material and non-material in some way, or maybe they're just really thin and flat. But anyway, this is the inciting incident of the story that we get that Wolf hasn't written for us. He has not started the story at the beginning. Humans have found a planet. Some people went down to investigate, and now some weird stuff is happening as a result of that. This is not narrated to us from the beginning of the story. The story does not open with Johan being the first watch officer, making sure that the explorers for the planet land safely, if he was even the first person on watch who experienced that. But I love how Wolf has left all of this in the background and asked us to figure out what or why anything is happening at all. What is the occasion for the beginning of this story? We have... In the text, a narrator waking up, but in the grander scheme of it, it's humans setting foot on an alien planet. Right, but this is kind of a a lower deck story that Gene Wolfe is telling here, right? The story opens with the dude thinking about his wall and complaining about how the lights in his room aren't working, and then just going about his day, right? It's really, we're we're pretty far into this story before we even learn that Johan super wishes he could have been a part of the away team. 
that's not a, a motive that we we had at all in the first episode, right? Like we've had to get to this point to get that motive. What we up to this point have been seeing Johan be motivated by is a desire to have sex with Grit, a uh, desire to get uh, new books and and maybe the desire to get some coffee as well and to be left alone by a meal right we've just seen a, a guy going about his daily life on this ship and wolf writes that brilliantly it really uh resonates w- with me right if I, I felt like wolf was really drawing on some of his own military experiences there that 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 seemed akin to to, to mine to, to, to ours i guess really uh, but we didn't have any kind of sense of what the story was going to be until pretty late in this is not something that creative writers writing teachers would would generally recommend, but I think it actually works a lot for this story because I am sucked in by the setting. I am sucked in by the quotidian functioning of this ship and then all of the malfunctioning of this ship that is going on in the background, such that I almost didn't even need a story to intrude here. But Wolf, I think, puts it in at exactly the right time. I agree as well. And and like I said, I love the way he hides the inciting incident of the story. It is an advanced technique to be sure. But I think he's telling the story the right way. This would be a different story if it was narrated any differently, a completely different story, perhaps. I I, want to point out another thing about the end of the scene here. When the shadow friend is taking Johan somewhere for some reason, we don't know where Johan is going. We don't know why he's being guided there. None of that is narrated. We just don't know where Johan is going or why and we don't get any more about his experience other than he's being taken somewhere. And that's something we're going to have to discuss because this is another example of major events not being narrated in the story. And and it there's also a, a part in this section that makes me just wonder about Johan in general. Back in the book gambling scene, we saw that he, the guy playing books doesn't read them. We touched on that briefly. And maybe that extends to a lot of people who play the game. We also mentioned that. But not Johan. Johan maybe has read some of the Dore New Testament. And he mentions God in this section and the word God, not just the idea, but the word. And it's in his head. The word is. And the shadow notes this. And that's kind of the only explanation we get of why the shadow has attached itself to Johan. I I don't know what these shadows, these inconceivable entities, these consciousnesses, or maybe just the singular conscious represented as a shadow has to do with being attracted to the idea of God, but it is. So that's just some food for thought here at this point, uh, but it's worth considering as we continue along in the story. Right. Another thing that we should say about the way that Wolf has set this up, too, is that we're, we're being told that that really at this point, almost nobody has any agency, even in this inciting incident, this incident that is actually inciting the story that we're going to get. Johan hasn't deliberately gone down to the planet. He hasn't deliberately astral projected down there. This has happened accidentally, right? Because it's also not that the shadow has brought him there. But Johan is there, and so now seemingly the shadow is going to guide him someplace, but for what purpose, we don't know. But this doesn't necessarily seem to have been the plan of the shadow all along, though maybe it 
it was, maybe it is, maybe it will turn out to be the case. But right now, everything is just looking totally accidental, right? That this story is happening to our main character, not something that the main character is doing. Though, by the end, we are going to see the main character. We're going to see Johan be a true protagonist with some goals and overcoming obstacles in order to achieve those goals. It, it is a complete and total dry run for Book of the Long Sun, just entirely. Yes, absolutely it is. And I, I can't wait to actually make that comparison. I don't know when we get there in the 2050s or whatever, whenever <laughs> we will get to get to Long Sun. But uh, all right. So this astral projection, uh, a sleep but not dreaming excursion to the planet surface ends with Gerda waking Johan up in his quarters. And, and by the way, these names I know are confusing. I think especially if you're just listening to us and haven't read this story before or haven't read it in a while. But right, we do have three different women with German names that begin begin with G, uh, which of course is the best letter for a name to begin with. Uh, but still, it is confusing, even though, though Brandon has explicated this for us already. And we will talk about it again in the discussion. But uh, uh, I apologize for the uh, the confusion here. But this is Gerda, not Grit. And at any rate, when Johanna wakes, he, he finds that all the lights are on and, and they're all functioning just fine. But also that his hand is covered in his own dried blood and that his fingers are swollen and sore. But there is barely any time for this because he's late for his duty shift on the bridge and there's just been a message from the surface that requires the captain's attention. Uh, the comms officer is waiting until Johan can get there before he wakes the captain so that she won't realize that Johan is not there. Uh, that's some good camaraderie there. That sort of thing that uh, makes me miss the army. That's uh, at least one sign that something right is going on on the ship <laughs> anyway. Uh, but when we get to the bridge, we get another gorgeous description that I want to read. Uh, and this one of what is on the, the view screen. The screen showed Neuerdrat hanging in the velvet void of space. Nameless green oceans washed terrible yellow continents riven with chasms. Continents where mountains cast shadows as long as rivers. And rivers sprung from those mountains clove the land with ebony and mustelin scars. This is a gorgeous description of really what amounts to a scene from Star Trek, right? But with much better effects than Star Trek was capable of, of, of doing in the uh, the 60s or the, the 80s or the 90s, for sure. And I have to say, too, that it really seems like Wolf is searching hard for that perfect word for the shade of black that he has in mind. He's trying here. I'm not quite sure that mustelene or ebony are it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, mustelene is a very, very strange word. Uh, it's a category of mammals that skunks are in so he's describing you know kind of uh light in this black space but uh yeah he's he's still not quite there yet no but but someday maybe we'll uh we'll find what that word is uh spoiler alert i guess <laughs> well we can uh we can set aside obscure words and gorgeous descriptions here and we can we can get to the the point of this scene which is that when the captain comes out of her ready room the away team reports that they saw a person down there. A man is the word the officer uses, and, and, and maybe that just means bipedal creature, but maybe it means human, and maybe it means Johan. Right. At this point in the story, I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether or not the shadows can imitate human form in some way. Uh, and now we're dealing with the body snatchers type of story that they've to copied the form, and we're dealing with a, a kind of double type of story where we have... Uh, bodies slowly being taken over or the form of the body being taken over and it's now going to be a better version of that uh, certainly a classic double story that is a genre of literature 
or a trope of literature that goes back to one of Dostoevsky's tales. But at the end of the day, I I think we're meant to understand that this was Johan, that they saw uh, that his dream was not quite a dream. You know, again, with the Gerda Grit and Gretchen stuff, we pointed this out in the last episode. and, and, And as you pointed out, Glenn, we explicated it a little bit. But this is a Faust reference. The names are confusing. Uh, but the work cut out for us is why we have three different characters all making the same literary illusion. Uh, we're going to hold off on that until the discussion. I'm glad we are because I still at this point have no idea what is what is going on with this business, but I'm really looking forward to digging in on it. Uh, Wolf uses a, a narrative trick here where we cut away from the last scene seemingly just as it was getting started. And now then in the next scene, he narrates the, the rest of the away team's report as a flashback as Johan is thinking about it while he walks the empty corridors of the officer's area. From their camp on the tour, the away team noticed something moving on the desert in the distance. And when they used their telephotos on it, they saw that it was a human. And moreover, it was a human without a breathing mask. So, Johan, right? At least, maybe. And that's something Johan is certainly thinking about here. And there is a great line here when uh, the away team realizes that the moving being was not a humanoid or a feathered and painted savage or some strangely equipped emissary from a hypothetical transgalactic civilization. And and I love this line as an homage to the golden age of science fiction and, and also to, to Star Trek, which is maybe the ultimate expression of that golden age. It's just a, a, a beautiful science fiction-y line here. But now we get to the heart of this scene, the the longest single scene that we've had so far in this story, and it is straight out of Star Trek. Johan wants to talk to the ship's computer, which in this story is called the Overmonitor. Uh, there's a catch, though, which is that the captain had the Overmonitor fused to junk and scrapped, and so officially the Overmonitor doesn't exist now. Unofficially, it still does, because when the core computer area had been destroyed, the program itself escaped destruction by diffusing its function into less sophisticated equipment all over the ship, such as readers and vending machines and calculators. Uh, doesn't say toasters, but I think we're going to say toasters as well, just to get a little more uh, BSG in here. Uh, so there are still a few places where you can access the overmonitor and talk to it. The bridge is one of them, but you do not want to be caught doing that. And so Johan heads down to personnel, where the terminal is obscured by piles of blank forms and other office supplies. And what follows is comedic, but maybe also a little tedious. It's a a sort of two-person play with the computer and Johan, with the computer being about as obtuse as possible. I thought briefly, very briefly, about having us perform this as a play, Brandon, but I think really that that's just because I uh, I still dream of being able to be on Star Trek someday. So I'll just do this as a normal recap. Uh, I can even summarize this a little more succinctly than I've been doing things so far, I think. And I, I promise I won't actually do a computer voice, though I'm sorely tempted to do it. That was the part I was going to assign to myself, obviously. <laughs> well, Johan wants to know why a breathing apparatus has to be worn on Neuerdraht. Uh, the computer can't answer this question because it is not phrased properly. And, and that's really the bulk of the conversation, the, the computer being a logic and grammar lawyer and refusing to answer the spirit of Johan's questions. But once he rephrases the question to, why does the expedition wear the breathing apparatus? The answer is... Obviously, because the expedition has been instructed to do so per Special Order 2112.223b. But why was the order issued? Well, the computer can't answer questions concerned with human motivation, so we're not going to get a solution to this mystery here. 
But there's more to this because as Johan is finishing up, the computer just keeps saying interrogative every few seconds. And, and here the personnel clerk explains that you have to shut the thing down or it will just keep doing that. It will just keep asking to be asked a question. The problem is that the automatic clearing routine is malfunctioning and, and Johan becomes interested in this. And so he follows up on it, even though his, his primary purpose is done. And the computer does not recognize that it is malfunctioning. And, and through a series of questions, Johan gets it to admit that it is not resetting when conversations are over because it has an order that supersedes that, the ship survival routine. The computer, you see, has determined that it is necessary to the survival of the ship that it harass people into asking it questions because the danger to the ship is that no one is taking its advice anymore. And the computer has calculated only a 23% chance of survival over the next five years because of this, because no one is listening to it. And the whole time that this has been going on, the personnel clerk has been telling Johan just to turn it off and also saying that it wants to take over the whole ship and also that it's insane. And because we've all watched 2001, right, we know that it is not a good idea when the ship computer thinks the human crew are jeopardizing the mission. And uh, that's where we're going to leave off today. We're going to leave off with this idea that uh, there may be a, a, a HAL, I don't know, HAL 10,000 uh, going crazy, <laughs> going wild on this ship. It's a strange, strange scene in this story. And, and we're going to have to determine by the time we get to the end of this story, just what is going on with the sh ship computer system, the over-monitor, all the references and imagery we get at this point of this story related to the over-monitor are negative. Johan thinks of the over-monitor as the narrator from Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Uh, that narrator is a pretty embittered guy and is ignored by other humans <laughs> and is a general misanthrope, so not a great description for a computer uh, that the clerk also refers to as God. And this is the first concrete God image we get in the story as well. We already have this kind of cult of reformed diabolists. Uh, is this part of the Faustian imagery we're dealing with? Big question we're going to have to answer. Then we have imagery describing the way that the over-monitor hit its programming anywhere it could hide bits of codes on the ship, like a creature scurrying in the dark and hiding from the light. But are the humans good? Is the computer good? We just don't know. <laughs> then we get a sense that the over-monitor is interested in its own survival, or at least the ship survival. And to me, this is a really ambiguous phrase because I'm not sure if the over-monitor thinks of the ship as itself as an operating system for a larger mechanical system or as the idea of a ship as like the crew, as the people that inhabit it of the job of the computer is to maintain all the services that keep the humans and crew alive on it. What level of system analysis is taking place here? I have no idea. And levels of system analysis is going to be a big section of the story that we cover in a little <laughs> bit, but still it seems that the computers on the ship have their own faction in this power struggle that is taking place all in the background. Now, I've said it before. This is probably the last time I'll say it in this uh, mini-series on Silhouette. This last section that we covered today drives home how much of a predecessor this story is of Long Sun. As I said, the clerk refers to the over-monitor, the governing computer system, as God. The over-monitor is in a state of decay. The main character, the protagonist of this story, is going about his daily life while forces beyond his control are trying to set him up as some kind of messianic figure. I mean, if you 
like Book of the Long Sun and haven't read this story, uh, you should just stop and read it and join us for the rest of the episodes because this is a, a great window into the creative process that led to the Book of the Long Sun. Right. And uh, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but we are going to see some some other parallels between the, the two main characters as well. Uh, I think even in the next episode, we'll get some more information about Johan. Uh, before we sign off today, too, I do just want to echo something that you've you've been talking about here in terms of the backstory that we're not really getting or, or, or really the sort of big plot actually that's going on in the story that is f- hiding in the background that wolf is hiding in the background maybe we should say which is that they, there is clearly some conflict between the the captain and the computer right the captain and the overmonitor but both were sent out on this mission with orders presumably the same orders about how to fulfill that mission and they seem to have had some disagreement about how to do that and it is not clear to us who is right whose side we as the reader should be on right we don't know who we're supposed to be rooting for in this in this story and maybe johan doesn't either and i think that's the journey that we're going to get uh, as the story continues but we're going to leave the story on that bit of cliffhanger for now so that is going to do it for this episode i'm glenn mcdorman and I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple Forum or join us on the Clay Temple Media subreddit and, and talk to us about what you're thinking about this story so far. Uh, please come talk to us about physics, about the physics of faster than light travel, the, the physics of time. We desperately need some uh, some education, some schooling on this. And uh, that would be a lot of fun for me. So I would love to, to read that if you're someone with some expertise in that. We also want to remind people that we have put Kiwis Laputis Sum, this really magnificent Gene Wolfe short story up on Patreon. If you're not already a patron, we would love for you to to join us there so you can get access to that episode and uh, keep our shows on the air. Next time, we'll be back with part three of our recap. We're going to cover up to page 488. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.